God, we do pause and we are thankful uh, for your word. We thank you, uh, oh God, that it is a lamp unto our feet. Lord, we thank you that it shines a light to the path that we are walking. It gives us uh, clarity. Lord, it's useful for teaching and for correcting and for training in righteousness. And oh God, we do confess we need to be trained today. We need to be trained in this area of friendship, this wonderful gift that you've given to us. And so uh, we pray, God, that you would use your true and authoritative and relevant word uh, to do just that. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. A few weeks ago, over fall break, my family was able to spend uh, some time immersed in the wonderful world of Disney. Uh, we had uh, an amazing time together, but nobody quite loved, loved it like our son, Milo. Uh, he's three years old, uh, and he is a huge fan of Toy Story. In fact, he dressed up as Woody uh, in, at Halloween a few uh, years ago. You probably know that in the first movie, uh, a big aspect of, uh, of that movie revolves around the relationship between Woody and the new toy in town, the new toy in Andy's room, Buzz Lightyear. And the movie is really centered around this question, will they remain enemies or will they work together to form a friendship? Well, we all know from the movie that they go on to survive the perils of Pizza Planet and Sid's room to forge a friendship. Let's think about that movie and that concept. You know, wouldn't it be nice if friendship in the real world worked like a Disney movie? And yet we know that it doesn't. Friendship is hard. It takes a lot of work. It doesn't come naturally to so many of us, even though it's something that we begin learning early on in childhood, very few of us have yet to actually master it in adulthood. I mentioned last week that friendship today has basically become synonymous with the number of friends and followers that you have on our social media platforms, despite the fact that the majority of those interactions revolve around sharing vacation snapshots, updating on our children's achievements, sharing different cooking recipes, sharing the funniest animal videos. While these activities, though, they, they do facilitate a certain degree of connectivity, uh, they fail to serve as a good foundation for fostering genuine biblical friendship. Despite the abundance of these online connections, in addition to how many of us are surrounded by a lot of people, whether it's on Sunday morning or at school throughout the week or even at work, Loneliness and isolation plagues so many of us, no matter the age. In fact, according to a study conducted by Cigna Healthcare just a few years ago, reported that 61% of adults in America feel lonely. The, the, the rates of loneliness are actually higher among those who are younger. We need clarity on this topic of friendship. Today, as we continue on in this series, we're gonna focus on what it takes to create a flourishing friendship. Before we dive in though, I just wanna give a caveat. Uh, the caveat is this, is that there is a spectrum uh, to flourishing friendship. I want you to think about baking uh, for a moment. I, I don't bake, just to confess to you, I have no baking skills uh, at all, but I do enjoy uh, what other people bake. And even though, it's maybe a little hint as we get into the holidays, uh, but even though, even though I don't bake, I know, and you know, that in order to create a great tasting dessert, 
you have to follow the recipe. You've got to include all of the different ingredients, right? If, you, if you're baking cookies and you leave out a key ingredient like butter or sugar, or, or if you don't uh, include enough of that particular ingredient, what you pull out of the oven is still a cookie. It's just not gonna taste the way it's supposed to taste, right? For a delicious cookie, you gotta include all of the ingredients according to the recipe. Well, in the same way, there are key elements or key ingredients that need to be present in order to experience flourishing friendship. If one is missing, you might still have a friendship, but it's not friendship in its truest form. So as we walk through these six ingredients or these six elements of a flourishing friendship, I want to challenge you this morning to take inventory of your current friendships. I want you to, to look at these ingredients and, and ask yourself, are, are these evident in my current relationships? So let's dive in here. Here's uh, the first ingredient for flourishing friendship is that there is a mutual bond between two people. I know this is obvious, but it is crucial nonetheless. Flourishing friendships begin when two people unite their hearts together. Now, some friendship experts uh, would even encourage you to, uh, to kind of express this commitment in a formal covenant. You'll, you'll read different things out there that actually encourage. I don't know if that's completely necessary as long as there's this mutual understanding of this bond and unity. We've seen this, of course, in Jonathan's relationship with David in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1, talks about how Jonathan's soul was knit to the soul of David. And that, in the Hebrew, in the original language, means that their spirits were united together. C.S. Lewis describes the beginning of friendship this way. He says, friendship arises when two companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste, which till that moment, each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. See, when two people discover a common connection, something that binds them together, a friendship can form. Now, as believers, we all share in common uh, the idea of following Jesus. But friendship is not limited to only having Jesus in common. While Jesus must be at the center of that friendship, other experiences and interests and tastes and hobbies can draw people together. I know personally for me, some of my closest friends that I still talk to just about every week are guys that I played college basketball with. We all love Jesus, we, we all follow him, but what really forged us together was this deep bond that we experienced through being on the same basketball team, that we were teammates, we played together, we practiced together, we won together, and we lost together. But that common interest was not a dead end. See, in flourishing friendships, that mutual interest is not an end in itself. That sometimes happens in acquaintances, right? Well, in a flourishing friendship, that mutual interest acts as a launching pad for deeper connection and love for one another. The result is that you care and you love that person more than whatever it is that you share in common, whatever hobby or interest that it is. 
We're going to continue to see this in the friendship of Jonathan and David throughout the rest of 1 Samuel. Of course, they shared this common bond of, of loving the Lord together. That's very clear and evident. But they shared other interests, other things that bonded them together, like killing Philistines, <laughs> or how they thought about, that's not an application point, of course, today. <laughs> that's going to get me in trouble, I guarantee it. But even how they thought and viewed King Saul. <laughs> All of these things, at the end of the day, for Jonathan and David, this mutual bond is what fueled their friendship, okay? Now, another important ingredient to flourishing friendship is deep trust, deep trust. Now, how is trust developed? It's developed through dependability and loyalty. We'll eventually get to this in our study in for Samuel, I promise, but in chapter 23, which seems years away, but in chapter 23, Saul is pursuing David, trying to kill him, and David's on the run. David is greatly discouraged, and Jonathan, his close friend, catches wind of this, and it says in verse 16 of chapter 23, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horash, and Jonathan went home. Now, this seems like just a simple example of encouragement. And yet what's happening here in the context is that Jonathan heard that David was discouraged. And so he got up and he journeyed 30 miles just to encourage David. 30 miles in a moment in which David needed his closest friend to step up and come through with him, Jonathan did so. Look for deep trust to exist in a friendship. You need friends who are dependable. If you're really going to trust somebody, you need the confidence that they are going to be there for you no matter what. I mean, don't you get annoyed with passive friends? Don't you get annoyed with, with friends who are unreliable and, and flaky and just aren't there for you when you need them the most, whether that's emotionally or physical, uh, physically? Look, we all need those 3 a.m. friends, right? When you have an emergency and you need to call somebody, that you call that friend and you know you have confidence that they're going to pick up. You know that they're going to drop whatever it is and they're going to come and be there for you, whatever the case may be. I remember after our daughter Lila was born, uh, my wife experienced postpartum depression and anxiety. It was the dead of winter, and I went back to work, and Lindsay's mom went back to Ohio, and she was just stuck at home with a three-year-old who was bored and a very needy newborn. And we'll never forget, in that particular season, Faith Hamer took a whole day off work and just came and sat with Lindsay. She cleaned the house, she played with Ellie, and she just allowed Lindsay to kind of figure out breastfeeding. <laughs> Lindsay didn't even know exactly what she needed in the moment, and yet Faith showed up and was there for her. You know, for there to be deep trust among friends, there, there has to be th this idea of loyalty and commitment and dependability that says, I'm gonna be there for you no matter what. Like, I've got your back. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 10 says it this way. 
Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend, and do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. It's that idea of loyalty. It's that idea that I can rely on this particular person. Now, of course, we want to avoid being that type of friend that's loyal to a fault, right? Who, who overlooks the sin of your close friend for loyalty's sake, right? Hopefully that's obvious to us. A loyal commitment means that there is a confidence that my friend will not forsake me. You can actually put it this way, that a faithful friend is one who walks in when everyone else walks out. A faithful friend says, I'm going to be there for you through the ups and the downs of life, and I'm going to be there to encourage you and to support you. But as long as it doesn't go against Scripture, and if I have to pick a side, I'm going to pick your side every single time. And I think there's this trust, there's this loyalty that exists among flourishing friendship to protect what is so special about friendship. You know, in our household, we call it ride or die. You know, this loyal commitment through thick and thin. Thirdly, though, another key ingredient to flourishing friendship is a heart-level vulnerability. And this vulnerability, this will result in being truly known. And you can already see how these, these ingredients build off one another. Right, vulnerability comes as a result of having trust with someone else. Or you could actually say it this way, to open yourself up most fully to the friends that you trust most deeply. Right, open yourself up most fully to the friends that you trust most deeply. This is so important here. I think this is, this is where we probably need to be challenged the most out of all of these six ingredients Because you and I, we have a tendency to mirror or to imitate Adam and Eve's instinct when we sin, when we experience fear, or even when we experience shame. And that instinct is to run and hide. We're all prone to running and hiding, to to isolate ourselves from other people, right? to cut off people from seeing and knowing what's truly going on. It's exactly what happened in the very beginning. Adam and Eve fall into sin, and they run, and they try to hide from God. In fact, they actually try to put on fig leaves to kind of cover themselves up. Look, we have our own 21st century fig leaves, don't we? We, we hide behind busyness, or we hide behind achievements, or superficiality, or fill in the blank, whatever it is for you, these things that instead of being vulnerable, Instead of actually being truly known, we hide behind all of these other things. Yet what we need to be aware of is that it is dangerous, dangerous to be vulnerable, to not to be be vulnerable with those that we are closest with. Because when temptation meets isolation, temptation will win just about every time. Bonhoeffer is the one who said that he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. Now, the joy of friendship, we can experience the joy and the depth and the beauty of friendship when we are truly known and loved anyway. Now, in order to get to that place, guess what has to happen? You have to come out of hiding. You have to take off the mask, 
put down the walls and stop playing the game of pretending to be something that you're not. Now, I know what we're all feeling in that moment right there. We're all feeling this like, ah, that's risky. To be truly known, really? Like my struggles, my doubts, my fear, everything? Yeah, yes, it's risky. I understand that. Absolutely. But it's 100% worth it. I love uh, what C.S. Lewis talks about when he, he talks about this idea of love and vulnerability. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Vulnerability in friendship is actually a gift. It's a gift to both individuals. Proverbs 27 verse 17 says, uh, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. Right? We probably all know that proverb, but just to state the obvious, that iron sharpening iron process, that, that doesn't happen when two friends just kind of sit around and talking about how they're killing it, how they're thriving, how they're doing really, really well. That sharpening process occurs when one person opens up and shares and talks about their weaknesses and their struggles and invites that person in and says, help refine me, help strengthen me, help improve me. It takes vulnerability. In his book, Made for People, uh, Justin Early, he makes such an insightful distinction between sharing and vulnerability. He says, sharing is what we do to update people on our lives. Vulnerability is what we do to let people into our lives. He says that sharing is, is talking about what happens to us. Vulnerability is what happens in us. Sharing takes time. Vulnerability, it takes courage. Vulnerability uses words to, to let other people into the messiness of our lives. Or the way that this might play out is sharing will say something like this to their friend, I'm struggling spiritually, which is a good step. Like that's, that's really healthy to do, but vulnerability takes it a step further and says, I'm struggling spiritually and this is how. I haven't read the Bible in months and I'm struggling with deep doubts about God. Can I talk to you about those? You see the difference between the two? Well, here's some markers of vulnerability. You, you know that you're vulnerable at the heart level with your friends when, when the following is present. Number one, when you are sharing your fears, failures, and weaknesses with your friends, not just your strengths, successes, and the positive aspects of your life. Or number two, you invite others in as you suffer, <clears throat> not just when the trial is over. Not just when you're on the other side of suffering, but in the midst of suffering. Number three, you're open about your sin with specificity. Number four is that you are honest about where you are spiritually without an insincere Christianese spin to it. Right? We're so good at that. 
right? This is what I'm going through. And then we kind of throw on top of that some type of Christian cliche. Lastly here, you're, you're actually transparent about your fears. All right, how'd you do with those? Again, as you're taking inventory of your friendships, uh, do you have this aspect of vulnerability present in your friends? My guess is, is that we need more heart-level vulnerability. Well, tied closely to, vul- uh, to vulnerability is the element of gracious honesty. Gracious honesty. Words are so powerful, aren't they? Words have the ability, the potential to bring friends closer together or to tear them down. Proverbs 16, verse 28 says, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. You wanna know a great way to destroy trust among friends? Gossip, lie, be, be deceiving, right? Share sensitive details with other people or just be careless with your words in a way that, that hurts somebody else. Even just a careless tongue can cause hurt and division among the closest of friends. And I think we need to be careful with, with our tongues, with our words in our friendships because something that's so natural that happens is that the closer you become with somebody, the more loose you become with, with words, right? Like the closer you are with somebody, the more you let down your guard. And that's natural, but we need to be intentional with how we use our words. We want our words to be marked with honesty and for building one another up. Right? Proverbs 27 verses 5 and 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love, that wounds from a friend are better than kisses from an enemy. This is important because a true friend might wound you with the truth, but it's for your good and growth, right? A true friend may not always tell you what you want to hear, but they will tell you what you need to hear, right? Whatever is good for your soul. An enemy or a disingenuous friend is probably just gonna tell you what you want to hear even for your detriment. I think about the rings of relationships that I talked about last week from uh, Drew Hunter, It's that image of the four concentric circles of relationships, that outer ring uh, are are impersonal relationships. And then the next ring, it's the acquaintances. And then the next ring, it's casual friends. And then right in the middle, it's that ring of close friends. Look, we have a responsibility in every one of our relationships, every person we come in contact with, to be honest, right? But the closer and closer you get to the middle there, the people that you're absolutely closest with, because there's trust, because there's vulnerability, because there's this intimacy, you have a a higher responsibility to even share at times difficult truth. Randy Alcorn said that we are to build bridges of grace that hold the weight of truth. That's a great just kind of one-liner to describe close friends. So my, my challenge for us, if, you're, if you do have those close friends in your life, don't shy away from opportunities to speak honestly with those close friends, especially uh, if your motivation is for, for their good and their growth, which it should be. And be reminded that in God's sovereignty, he has put you in that friend's life for a reason, not by accident. There is a purpose that God has drawn you two together and what's likely happening there 
is God is wanting you to share with that friend what needs to be shared. And maybe you're the only one that can actually share it in that particular season. So steward that closeness and that bond that you have and speak the truth in love, with grace, in humility, and with clarity. The fifth uh, key element or key ingredient of friendship is sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. For Samuel 18.1, Jonathan loved David as his own soul. Proverbs 17.17 says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Now, this is, uh, this is probably the most obvious one. I, I, I would assume so. But I think it's the most challenging. I think it's so challenging to think about sacrificial love because what's so common in our culture today are these transactional friendships, right? It's how consumerism has actually creeped into friendship, right? Transactional friendship basically finds friends and keeps friends based on how it benefits me, right? So I'm at the center. The benefits, in, it's all about me. So, so the consumer friend will stay committed to that friendship as long as they're getting something in return. A consumer friend doesn't really want you. They just want the benefits that come with being in a relationship with you. But a true friend doesn't, doesn't use you, but enjoys you. True friend is gonna stay in that friendship even if they're not getting anything in return. Well, I'll stop and ask you the question, when was the last time that you actually sacrificed something in your friendship? When was the last time that you, you gave something up or something was a huge inconvenience to you out of love for a friend? Or you put it this way, is it truly a friendship if there's no sacrifice involved? If you're thinking about loving your friends and, and only doing so when it's convenient for you, when it doesn't cost you anything, when it's easy, is that true friendship? And we're challenged with 1 Corinthians 13. We have a clear picture here, a clear definition of love as the apostle Paul writes. He says this, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. We've done this exercise before, but I want you to take out the word love in this passage and put your own name there in regards to your friendships. How true is it? How accurate would it be? Let me, let me go, let me, let me do this. Chris is patient to his friends. Chris is kind. Chris does not envy. Chris does not boast. Chris is not proud. Chris is not self-seeking. Chris keeps no record of, it's, hard. it's a hard exercise. It's challenging. To actually truly love, biblically love our friends. And what it demands is sacrifice. It demands daily dying to yourself in order to truly live out 1 Corinthians 13 in our friendships. And this is our aim. Our aim is to love our friends sacrificially.
Well, this takes us to the last, the sixth ingredient here, and that is that flourishing friendships have a Christ-centered reality. Yes, you can experience friendship without Christ at the center, just like you can enjoy a cookie or have a cookie without sugar. It's possible, right? There's There's a spectrum, but it won't be the truest and richest form. A flourishing friendship results when those two friends, they love Jesus more because of that friendship. They follow Jesus more faithfully and they look more and more like him. I love this scene in Mark chapter two and the picture of friendship it provides. It says, uh, here's the picture. It says, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he, Jesus, was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him, Jesus, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. This is an unbelievable passage here. The purpose of this passage is, of course, not giving us, it's not to give us a complete picture of friendship. I get that, right? The, the main uh, thrust of that passage is to show Jesus' power to forgive and to heal. But, but secondarily, we should be struck by the commitment of the paralytic friends in bringing him to Jesus. Right? Picture this scene in your mind. You've got Jesus who is teaching in a home. And it is so crowded with people. It is so packed, probably like uh, what it was like this morning, that the the paralytic friends, they can't even get inside the house. They they can't even bring their, their friend who's paralyzed before Jesus in that home. But notice their response. What did they do? They just give up and go home. Well, I guess we can't see Jesus today. No, they doubled down. They climbed up on the roof with their paralyzed friend, which could not have been easy. They cut an opening on the ceiling there and they let down their friend from the roof to the feet of Jesus. What amazing friends. Like that, that's, that's what I'm talking about here with having a, a Christ-centered reality. And that happened here in Mark chapter two because the, the paralytic's friends were convinced that they could not heal their friends. That's not their job. They understood that the answer to their, par- their paralyzed friend's problem was not just sitting around the fire laughing and talking. Now, as good as that is, the, the goal of friendship is to bring that other person to the feet of Jesus. That flir- flourishing friendship at the end of the day understands I'm limited. You're limited. And what we need the most is for both of us to be laid down at the feet of Jesus. That friendship exists as a means by which we say to one another, I love you with all that I am, but there is one who loves you perfectly. And his name is Jesus. And he loves you and cares for you and will minister to you in ways that I cannot. Come, let's sit at the feet of Jesus together. That's flourishing friendship. So Mark 2, don't be like the crowd who's getting in the way 
of, of your friend seeing Jesus. Let's follow this example of the paralytic friends who will stop at nothing to bring you closer to Jesus. This is the essence of biblical friendship. It's what sets it apart from worldly friendship. Friendship finds its beginning and its purpose and its power in Jesus, and it will change your friendships forever. In fact, if you have this sixth ingredient, it's Christ-centered reality, the other five are going to follow. The other five are eventually going to come. This mutual bond, right? This deep trust, the vulnerability, the, the gracious honesty, the sacrificial love, and you will have a flourishing friendship. Let's pray together. God, we do praise you. Lord, we thank you for the gift of friendship. God, we thank you that we don't have to battle this world and and our flesh and temptations that we face alone, but Lord, you've given us people to do life with, to be known, to be loved, to be pointed to Jesus. And Lord, it's hard, it's challenging. Lord, so much of our selfishness is exposed in friendship and and that's uncomfortable for us. And yet, Lord, would you show us, Lord, the beauty of friendship as we, as we have Christ at the center. Lord, help us to be faithful friends. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.